Hello, my name is Dave Anthony. Welcome to The Dollop. Each week, sometimes twice a week, mm-hmm. uh, we do a podcast, and it's about American history, and I tell a story to my friend. Gareth Reynolds, who has no idea what the topic is about. And how does he not? <laughs> well, well, he's dumb. <laughs> that's not fair. I think it's true. No, don't perpetuate that <laughs> fucking shit, because... That that's hey. when that's when that crosses a line. A lot of when somebody's just like, "Hey, the dumb one." Yeah, yeah. No, all right, he's smart. I just ain't read too many books. <laughs> I ain't a book reading, but I, I know stuff. I don't read books. I read articles online. God, you want a little hit of it? I'll do one bottle. <laughs> people say this is funny. Not Gary Garrett. Dave, okay. Someone or something is tickling people. Is it for fun? And this is not going to become the tickling podcast. Okay. You are Queen Fakie of Made Up Town. All hail Queen Shit of Liesville. A bunch of religious virgins go to mingle and do what? Pray. Hi, Gary. No. Nicely done, my friend. No. No. <laughs> Gary, Gareth, Gareth, don't even move on without enough. No, you have a story uh, that I would like to hear that happened to you. Nah, Uh, it's called an American history story because it's about um, American Airlines. It's about about travel. Yeah. Domestically and yeah, abroad. Yeah. So what happened uh, this week? Well, um, David, I went to England mm-hmm. over the holidays to surprise my mother mm-hmm. and see my family. And uh, it was lovely. And I normally fly uh, American Airlines. Sure. I'm pretty loyal to them. They're a shit company, but go ahead. Well, it's just, you know what it's like, though. When you start flying one airline, sure. you're like, you know, Miles. you're kind of in the dumb relationship where you're like, you'll do. Yeah. You know, so I put a ring on it. And... Uh, I so I flew over there great, and then as I was flying back, um, and I guess I'm just dumb as we established, yeah. uh, and I didn't know that I would be flying British Airways back because I fly American, right? But I was flying British Airways, and uh, so then I flew back, and I got and I landed in Houston in the states, yeah, and um, and my flight like was leaving at like 9 p.m. that night. That's all I knew. Yeah. So when I was landing, I was like, it's got to be like 6, 7, you know. They were like, the local time is 1.30. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was like, what is, what? An eight-hour layover. Because I've never heard of that. I just no. figured the machine yeah. would handle the idea that like yeah. three hours is probably great. That'll yeah. do fine. The eight is a visit. Eight, eight is, you're hanging. <laughs> yeah. And, you're you're uh, meeting Houston. Yeah. You're, you're Texan. And... So I got there for my eight-hour layover. Yeah, good times. <laughs> and they just kept delaying and delaying and delaying. So so the eight hours is becoming ten. Well, it's all perspective, right? Because you're like, eight hours, oh, that's going to be a pain in the ass. Yeah. And then at like hour you know, 14, you're like, God, remember when I hated eight hours? <laughs> I'd suck a dick for eight hours right now. Those eight hours, those were the days. But then so they, they pushed, they pushed, they pushed, <coughs> and then... Um, it. I just had the the feeling like this is not going to end well. So I was hanging up near the counter, and people were kind of like, "What the fuck is going on?" And this woman got on the PA, and she was just like, she shouldn't have said this probably, but she was just like, "We don't know what's happening. There's a mechanical problem. the The mechanic literally just walked off, and we don't know where he is." <laughs> American Airlines. Everybody was like, what? And then they canceled it soon after, and then so I had to spend the night in uh, in Houston and then leave the next day. What the fuck is that? So door to door, 
from where from the small town I was in in England to Heathrow to Houston to LA to get my car to home. It took 37 hours. Holy <laughs> fucking shit. Yeah. 37 hours you're flying American Airlines. Ah, oh, man. It's just like that's when you feel that's when you feel the pulse of pride inside your veins. So if you're coming over from Australia, um Air I'm New Zealand sounds I'm gonna good. I'm going to recommend you don't fly American Airlines. Yeah. Gary It's Gareth. The year was 18 not good. 83. <laughs> that's right where I want it. Okay, it's in the, it's in the zone. Yeah. Young William Kennedy was born in Harlem. Okay. Harlem was supposed to have blossomed when the subway and railroads arrived. Sure. Having met a large agricultural community, spec- speculators readied Harlem as an exclusive suburb for the white middle class. Well, and their vision held true. Yeah, uh, They built stately houses and Grandview a- Avenues. Oscar Hammerstein opened his Harlem Opera House there in 1889. People right. thought shit was going to blow up. <laughs> People were probably right. But the affluent middle class did not arrive as fast as anticipated or at all. And in order to survive and attract residents, building owners lowered their rents. The result was an influx of immigrants, East European Jews, Irish, as well as African Americans. No, those are not immigrants, but no, everybody, yeah, everybody I like gets, how, yeah, everybody gets. What Remember when you immigrated here? No, fuckface. From, from just, I was in the Bronx. <laughs> uh, so white Harlem never took off. Shocking, because that's what I feel like. Those are like peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. The stockyards alternated with gas works. Modern brick tenements were erected alongside old wooden shacks to handle the waves of the poor. Among those poor was an Irish family headed by Larry J. Kennedy. Classic, uh, uh-uh. classic Irish name. Yeah. Larry. 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 LJK. Larry and his wife cranked out nine kids. <laughs> cranked, did they? Well, <laughs> if you're Irish, that's the law. You got to move. Point, you got to just keep making yeah. out of your stuff. I haven't healed yet. Sorry, it's time. Sorry, we're going again. We got to put more buns in the hot oven. I've got to put me cock in you. <laughs> Are you ready, Marilyn? <laughs> no. Here we go. Oh, no. I'm hardly healed. Not again, Larry. No. Oh, oh this is a cranking. Oh, Jesus. Oh, I'm cranking, Mar. Oh, Lord. Oh, bye. <laughs> it's worse than Comstock. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I think I think we've been rude enough to that woman's <laughs> vagina. <laughs> William Kennedy, Bill, was the second of nine children and went to work at the age of seven. <laughs> I was so excited for the age and it really paid off. Seven. 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 All right, Dad, it's time. Oh, God, the bus is up hey, my Bill, ass. Uh, Bill, what are you? <laughs> Six, seven. I'm seven, Dad. All right. Seven. Time to earn your keep. Seven. 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 Selling uh, newspapers on street corners. Ugh. Right? Yeah. This is just good times. Sure. Don't worry about school. No. Don't worry about school. Nope. We're giving you a chance. The streets of Harlem. Extra, extra. Your life's fucked. <laughs> extra, extra. I'm going nowhere. <laughs> extra, extra. I'm seven. <laughs> extra, extra. No laws. Uh, the streets of Harlem were muddy past clogged with cows and chickens when Kennedy was a boy. By the time Bill was nine in 1892, his father decided Harlem wasn't the place to be and moved his brood out to another frontier. Port Chester, a tiny but bustling factory town in New York's Westchester County. Okay. Which I was just at on vacation. 
It's not. It's not that great. No. <laughs> They're chickens and cows. Well, well, well. Port, port, port uh, Chester's. You know. Mm. There, LJ. <laughs> Put that on the sign as you drive in. <laughs> there, LJ, as he was known, plied his trade as a bricklayer. Yeah. Dad's a brick man. Age eight. Yeah. Dad's a brick man. You're going to sell papers. Yeah. <laughs> he eventually became a somewhat successful contractor overseeing the construction and enlargement of factories, schools, hospitals, and libraries across the region. So he's fucking... Yeah. He's rolling. He's clearly connected to some Irish... Timothy Hall, sure, bullshit, getting sure. getting the sweet deals. Yeah, nothing. We'll nothing, take it. Nothing that my my Irish uh, ancestor did back then was was above the table. No. It was all fucking. Well, it was potato bribing. <laughs> Do you have the potatoes? How about the potatoes? LJ had learned the trade from his father, and so he taught Bill and his brothers the way of bricklaying. Fascinating. <laughs> you- Put it down a slab of fucking that shit here. Put her down there. And then put it down there. Okay, grab another one. All right. Now do that till you fucking die. You're go- <laughs> <laughs> you should have gone to school. Yeah. Bill took up the trail and went to work as an apprentice at age 13. He grew up on his father's <laughs> building site. 13 years old. Yeah, well, it's securing a sweet death at 24. <laughs> Flying through cliff note in life. <laughs> yeah, he grew up on his father's building sites, pushing heavy wheelbarrows full of bricks, <laughs> and carefully measuring and staking core lines where walls would begin. Wearing a cloth cap on his head and a button-down shirt and tie under his work overalls, Ugh. he a tie. Yeah, it's such bullshit that they used to make you wear like a. What fu- the like- fuck? You're a construction yeah, guy. Nobody gives a shit. Oh, you can't look like shit when you're putting the no. bricks down. No, don't embarrass yourself in front of the martyr. Respect the bricks, boy! <laughs> you treat every brick like a brick funeral. For Christ's sakes. Where's your fucking tie? They <laughs> uh, <laughs> just have to work in tuxedos in a field. He would stoop over to pick up a brick from its pile, place it on the mortar bed, and tap it into place. Then stoop to pick up a new brick over and over it a hundred times a day. Oof. Living the dream. I've gone to America. (laughs) The young Kennedy learned how to build walls, staircases, chimneys, and walkways. And like his old man, he learned to cuss, chew tobacco, and appreciate his union. Yep, sure. (laughs) At age 14, he was the head of the union, being the eldest. (laughs) Uh, We want to be paid in chocolate. Uh, the the union was the Bricklayers and Masons International, founded in 1865, the oldest continuously operating trade union in North America. All right. Bricklayers. Yeah. Bill, as he was known, also learned to drink beer with the older Brickies after work. <laughs> the older Brickies. Yeah, they okay. call themselves Bricky. I like I'm that. I'm a Bricky. So he's just, I like, I mean, this, this is going to, I don't know where we're headed, but... I like I like I like some of the details. The drink the drinking the drinking like a construction worker at thirteen is nice. It's a beautiful thing. His father, who was a noted teetotaler, yeah, was not pleased with the drinking. Wait, what's a teetotaler? People who don't drink. You do, oh. do you never the phrase teetotaler? No. Yeah, so it means people who who just don't. Don't ha- don't enjoy the, the the beverages. Straight edge. Yeah, straight edge. Yeah, yeah. Now, now known as straight edge. Now known as straight edge. Uh, the boring people. Yeah. Um. Uh. The cheerful Bill and his hot-tempered father would fight over Bill's drinking often. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good places. Maybe butting heads with his father is what led Bill into the ring. 
Oh, yum. At 14, Bill began moonlighting as a prize fighter. Okay. Oh, okay. So just so we've summed up. Okay. By 15, he has lived more life than 15. I have now. I mean, He's... it must be strange for your life to literally play out as a montage for you. <laughs> He's been selling newspapers. He's in a union. He's a bricklayer. He fights with his dad, yep. and he's a prize fighter. <laughs> oh, man, you know what? 16's going to be weird. And in this day and age, he couldn't drive yet. <laughs> That's right. Um, the death of his mother at 15 probably also made him want to punch strangers. Okay, so, and his mother died at 15. So he's yeah. got it all. He's got, yeah. he's, he, right now he's middle-aged. Well, she, she, saw, she saw a sweet 33, which was far longer than was expected. <laughs> I would have lived longer if you hadn't fucked me all the time. <laughs> I think I'm dying from a broken vagina. <laughs> For the next couple of years, Larry and Bill would struggle living and working together without the tempering influence of the woman that had held their had held them together. <laughs> oh. mm. All right, sad. so we removed we removed the border, the, mother, the motherly presence. Yeah, the, the bricks. That, now it's just two yes. bricks on top of each That's other. Right. Oh man, you know what I mean? That should be a hallmark, huh? dude. Technically, the sport of boxing was illegal in New York. But the state's 1896 Horton Law created a loophole for private athletic associations to stage, quote, fistic exhibitions of sparring. I mean, yeah. Fistic? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, I love when the government carves out loopholes, too. <laughs> oh, you're going to get your fistic removed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, places like the Coney Island Athletic Club charge spectators admission fees which they called temporary membership dues. It's a lot like marijuana here. Like yes. a lot of, it's like yes. you donate. It's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, you're a member yeah. of the club. Well, here you go. Here's how much you have to donate for your weed. Yeah. Gamblers then bet <laughs> so on I've the heard. fights. Gamblers bet on the fights and boxes were paid under the table. Great. Shockingly, Perfect. this led to rig matches between mediocre fighters and dirty promoters. I don't know how this all led to that because it seems so up. And no, up yeah, and get... like such a good law. Well, well no, run. there's yeah, there's definitely a lot of rules. I'm sure it sounds like there's a lot of rules. Boxing is illegal unless you do it in a private club. Yeah, <laughs> right. What? And you can gamble and whatnot, and everyone gets paid in cash. All right, all but right. it ain't boxing. Okay, now let's keep it straight. Now let's boys. get this boxing match started. <laughs> let's keep it straight. No fucking around. <laughs> Young teens like Bill fought on the warm-up undercards. $3 for the winner, $2 for the loser. Whoa. Bill was lo- the loser much more often than the winner. All right. Two bucks. Two bucks. Two bucks. That's fine. Uh, the big money headline bouts were pretty ugly. Quote, they fought not in a scientific manner, but with true slugging form. And the way they thumped each other made the spectators howl with delight. The police gazette reported. The police... Uh, <laughs> I'm a little overwhelmed with where to start, but first of all, who who is who who fights scientifically? Um, scientists. Yeah, but they, I mean, that's the scientists get the snot kicked out of them when they fight. They're like, hold on, if I actually look at the angle, oh god, my face! Oh my god, I used to love the scientific fights of Muhammad Ali. Oh my god, yeah, when he was just yeah tremendous. <laughs> yeah, he just have he just have a piece of chalk in his hand, demonstrating. But then, okay, so. And then the the, the, the police gazette, the police, right? The, the police newspaper is reporting on the is reporting on the quasi illegal the loophole <laughs> fights. Yeah, but as like real journalism. Okay, all right, continue. 
Continued to further end the quote, Maher Maher beat his opponent's bruised eye into a jelly-like pulp. Several fighters died during the Horton Law era. The matches attracted the cigar-chomping, derby-clad gamblers who would be seedy characters, and brawls and even riots broke out after some fights. Bill started to realize there wasn't a big future in the world of fighting, and he hung up his gloves after a few years. However... It was in training for boxing that he realized he enjoyed running. Simply legging it up and down the paved streets of Port Chester and the dusty country roads nearby. But he stopped running as he had entered adulthood because back then, grown men just didn't run around for the fun of it. <laughs> like, you could do it if you're like, I'm training for boxing! Or, or if you're just, it, you just had to pretend you were being chased all the time. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's getting closer, he's getting closer! <laughs> Where the fuck are you going in such a hurry? I'm being chased. I'm running for fun. Queer. <laughs> running for fun. Who the fuck runs for fun? <laughs> you don't. I don't know. We just feel like you're being a little strange. We heard you were running for fun. What in the fuck happened to Bill? <laughs> he's... I see him the other day and he's running through the orchards. No boy of mine is out there running for fun. <laughs> no boy. Christ, you brought shame on our family. Oh, you're goddamn running. You're like running. Well, why don't you run out of this house? Because there's not a bed in here for you anymore. There's a lot of tears is what there are. (laughs) As the years went by, Bill and his brother Joe increasingly enraged their father with their late night carousing. Finally, when Bill was 18, he and Joe, who was two years younger, hopped a train bound for the West. Perfect. That's planning. So 18, he's like, I'm good to go. And then he takes his 16-year-old brother. Yep. Time, you know, living back then was a little bit different. Well, I mean, you definitely could follow whims. <laughs> you could definitely, like, a lead was all you needed for anything. Nowadays, you're like, I don't have a job lined up. Then you were like, that thing's going that way. Let's live there. <laughs> the Kennedy boys were part of a great westward movement that took advantage of the railroads. They were hoboing, sneaking a ride by train to a new town where they would then look for work. Back then, hobos looked down on tramps who wouldn't look for work when they got to a town. American Heritage defined the men this way. A hobo as a migratory worker, a tramp as a migratory non-worker, and a bum as a stationary non-worker. <laughs> oh, oh, that's the best. Look at you sitting and not working. That's like... You're a fucking bum. <laughs> you should be like my cousin, Bill. He's riding, least... riding around, moving about, working. Or at least like my other brother, who's a tramp. He's at least moving around. He's at least going somewhere. He's at least seen what the fuck are you doing laying there in the porch? <laughs> the porch? I love the tramps are like, well, it could be worse. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a bum. I'm not laying about. Look, I agree. I hear you. I'm not a hobo. I'm just telling you things could be worse. Dr. Ben L. Reitman explained in this way. The hobo works and wanders, the tramp dreams and wanders, and the bum drinks and wanders. <laughs> oh, but when you put it like that, who do you want to be? The bum. Yeah, the bum's got the fucking sweet oh, ride. Walked into a wall. <laughs> what are you going to do today? Get shit-faced and walk? <laughs> Why, what are you getting on one of your fancy trains? <laughs> Hobos were actually one of the builders of the West, called into life by a very special set of circumstances. Hoboing started after the Civil War. The original hobos were all veterans of the Civil War. They were the answer to underemployment. As a hobo named Wren stated, 
Do you know that this country couldn't exist without us hobos? The Northwest got to us. God, they don't speak well. The Northwest got to have us guys work at lumber in the winter. And then Oklahoma's got to have us work wheat in the summer. And we got to get there quick or the crops spoil. So the hobos were like this the, fucking... The, the infrastructure. To they work. were the yeah. infrastructure. Like they went wherever the work was. Right. John Tucker, who was president of the Hobo College in oh, Chicago, whoa, said... Oh, whoa, whoa, pal. We'll get back to that. All righty, as long as we're putting a pin in it. <laughs> he said, the hobo goes forth from the crowded slave markets to hew the forest, build and repair the railroads, tunnel mountains, and build ravines. He is the labor that harvests the wheat in the fall and cuts the ice in the winter. All these men are hobos. So it's, hobos... It, hobos is not a bad term. It's no, become it's, such a bad term. It has, but tramps yeah. are the bad ones. Tramps, yeah. If you took me on paper today, I would tell you the mo- the one I'd want to be would be a tramp. I'd want to be a bum. I mean, I'd find a nice lady. We'd eat spaghetti. Yeah, but you're not working, so how are you making money? I mean, you're robbing people, or you're how are you getting by? Give me all your money, fuck Okay, face. see, there we go. See? Also, Home tramp material. Is, is unnecessary. Back on the train. The Hubble College went under in 1916. <laughs> At Tuesday, April 16th, the Chicago Tribune reported... And by the way, I, I actually found this article. I found that, you know, when they, they, it's like a picture of the, they do like a PDF of the, of the paper. Yeah, yeah. I actually found the article of the Hobo College closing down. <laughs> Headline, Hobo's College Loses Students. Uh, Chicago's Hobo College has ceased Chicago's to function. Chicago's Hobo College. <laughs> <laughs> the great... The great hobo college has ceased to function. <laughs> Doctor, what is that degree from? Oh, I uh, went to school at hobo college. <laughs> now, excuse me, I'm going to put a fish in this woman. <laughs> now, now, show me that wound so I can put a salmon in it. <laughs> Warm weather has driven its students out of the city to seek jobs, and the loafers, who had no real interest in the college anyway, quit when free lunch was discontinued. <laughs> Coffee was the lifeblood of the college, and donuts were the stuff upon which it existed. So when coffee and rolls were missing recently at a session of the public speaking class, the doom of the college was sealed. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is the, yeah, they're like, they, they, have, uh, a, they have a bottom. There's no, there's no donuts? Fuck, are we doing? I'm going to go lay down in the park. I'm going to go puke in the park. Classes were held three times a week at 17 East Congress Street. On Tuesdays, the Reverend Erwin John Tucker instructed them in social economics. On Thursdays, Dr. John Cousins taught them sanitation and hygiene. Interesting that there had to be a class. <laughs> okay, boys. Uh, today we're going to talk about washing your balls. Okay. Welcome to brushing your teeth. <laughs> now you probably hear I'm the tough brushing your teeth teacher I am, okay? Kind of a hard ass. There's going to be a test. There's going to be a couple of tests and pop quizzes. <laughs> okay. Okay, first pop quiz going to happen right now. What do you brush your teeth with? Soap. Nope. <laughs> Each other. <laughs> okay, it's going to be a long year. Okay. Attorney George Waterman lectured on common law with special reference to vagrancy. Oh, boy. <laughs> I can't believe, can't believe that just, college closed. Yeah, it just does not sound like real position. 
<clears throat> America was in the middle of an enormous transition uh, as the nation underwent the shift from an agrarian economy to an industrial one. It was a period that also had rapidly increasing population, urban development, and geological expansion as the frontier pushed itself westward. These conditions were of fundamental development to the hobo, as were the expansion of the railroads, growing from 30,000 miles in 1860 to 230,000 miles mm. in 1890 and 254,000 miles by 1916. Nothing was more important to the hobo than the rails. The estimation of the number of hobos varies. A professor Holbrook suggested that in the 1890s there were 60,000 hobos. Also, I believe that the number of hobos in the late 1890s stood between 500,000 and 1 million. In 1934, the U.S. Bureau of Transient Affairs estimated there were 1.5 million hobos riding. The conclusion is that it's really fucking hard to count hobos. <laughs> hard to tell apart. Because you're not trying to count? Yeah. You can't count hobos. Wait, did, weren't, did you just get here or were you here before? <laughs> fucking. Oh my God, it's like y'all have the same hat. Sometimes I wish you guys were just bums. I cool. really do. Oh look, you got a broken cigar too. Yeah. Okay. Oh cool, you've got a fucking handkerchief with all your clothes in it on a stick. <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, boy. So the Kennedy brothers lived this way for a while. Then they made their way back to New York. Bill wasn't there for long. He went back out on the rails. He went hoboing? This time, he left the city alone without his brother. Okay. Hobo solo. Hobos were likely to prefer boxcars, but they rode anywhere. Atop cargo in open gondolas among the livestock and cattle cars, on bumpers between cars, or in the empty ice boxes. Uh, of the fruit specials. Oh my god, that just sounds horrible. I mean, that just sounds so just in, horrible. You're in there with all the pineapples. What are you gonna do? Uh, I'm gonna sleep near these cows and then get off <laughs> and get work. Then I'll work. To avoid detection, Bill often went. Often spent a whole trip riding the rods. Oh, just standing in between the. No, riding oh the rods is so much worse. Oh boy, which meant hanging onto the brake rods or beams underneath the freight or passenger oh cars, god. just above the wheels and track. Oh my god, this life Jeez. was very dangerous. From 1890 to 1910, 32,276 hobos and tramps were killed on American railroads. See, we can get a count of that. <laughs> it's just hobo corpses. Yeah, but that's like. Oh, that's a lot of dead people that's, dying from hanging like, out under trains. That's like a war. Oh, yeah, that's... No, sorry. That is a lot of dead hobos. <laughs> like, they must have been like every 13 feet. Well, yeah. That, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's multiple... I mean, that's so many a day. <laughs> you must have just been like, God, Jesus Christ, oh, there's so many fuck. dead fucking hobos. Is it raining hobos? Jesus Christ. <laughs> is it just me or are they multiplying? It's like they're born dead, though. Are th- what's happening? <laughs> it's like they're born full-size dead hobos. I think some town is just dumping their hobos here. <laughs> throwing what them off the train. It just be one guy who killed all those hobos. Oh, God, yeah. And he'd just be like, they should stop hanging out under trains. Uh, they either died by falls or encounters with railroad bulls, also known as private security officers. Uh, private security officers or other misfortunes. Oh, so those officers are just killing them. Oh, they would just beat the living shit out of them until and then okay until they you know they knock them over the head with a little interesting stick and, interesting policy. More than one met death when a missed hold sent him under the wheels. More than one came to an end at the hands of an overzealous brakey 
or a railroad bowl or starve to death when locked into a boxcar shunted into a, an unused building. Oh, gee, what a way to go. What a, Could you imagine? Oh, I can't wait to get off in Fresno. Never been there. Ugh. Okay, train stopped. Oh, I guess I'm in a dark warehouse. Have you seen Into the Wild, that movie? I, um... Think I'll probably just die here over the next eight days. Well, first I'm going to eat this wood. This <laughs> wood. Many other many other hobos were maimed for life. Now imagine if thirty two thousand died. How many were maimed? Like uh, how many lost legs uh, or yeah, whatever heads? No. Just trying to live without a head. <laughs> when, live. You meant Charlie doesn't have a head. When Bill was riding, hard to get a head count. It is hard to get a head count. When Bill was riding a rod on a freight train pulling into Cleveland, he fell asleep and slipped from the rod. Okay, you, oh, I, I mean, you can't, you can't have it all. What do you mean? If you're hanging under a fucking train, right? It's you, sorry, you nap when you get to your destination. Well, I agree. You should not nap when you're. You don't nap when you're. Hanging. If your life depends on you holding on to something, you shouldn't take a nap. Yeah, it's no time. It's just basic rules. Well, and that's just you could tell he's just getting too comfortable. I always thought that they that they. Because when, when they show it in movies, they attach their belt. Right. Yeah. Uh, he suffered severe cuts on his right arm, but he lived. From then on, he chose to ride somewhere safer, like the feed box of a cattle car. He later wrote, you can't sleep very well with the cattle eating the bed from underneath you. Fair. Well, lesser of two evils. Fair. Oh, but they're not going to kill you. No. And you're not going to fall off from your bed. Occasionally, he would get off into town to eat. Like at the free pretzels that saloons offered with a beer. Or sleep someplace stationary like a livery stable or a 10-cent flop house. So this is just great. What this a lovely, what a lovely life. life. Yeah. What a dream. Living the dream. Hey, yep. it's called freedom, baby. Hey, look, man. You're just napping wherever you can find and living yeah. on a diet of pretzels. Wherever, oh, just pretzels and beer yep. and then sleeping next to horses. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Simpler times, David. There was almost always work for a good bricklayer during this period due to industrialization, population growth, and urbanization. As a union member, okay, so he's still yeah. a union member. Yeah, even though so he's... all these hobos are cru- cruising out, and they're like, I'm a union man. Yeah. As a union member, he'd get job leads as well as uh, network, so he rarely didn't have food or friends around. This was Bill's life, traveling from coast to coast and from the north to the south. During a layoff one summer day in 1904 bill went to a baseball game he was drinking beer and sitting on a wooden bleacher seat when between innings a brass band struck up the popular song meet me in st louis oh no he's like yeah bill thought what an awesome idea (laughs) i will meet you in st louis this is this is how drunk hobos work yeah it's destiny. It's a song that came on. I'm going. That must be a movie of St. Louis. I should go there. All right. Get sleep with a cow. Can I get a handful of pretzels? At 20, he decided to head for St. Louis, which was then hosting the 20. World's Fair. It's ama- it really is amazing when you're talking Holy about this because he's aging a lot in my head. No, and he, now he's should, 20. he should be 45. Yeah, okay. Bill quickly realized that St. Louis was his kind of town. First, it was built almost entirely of brick. Hey, can't hate that. (laughs) Oh, he loves us a brick. Uh, This was partly because of a city ordinance after a devastating 1849 fire and partly because of the region's rich clay mines. 
The city had about 100 brick factories at the time. Jesus Christ. The era of the brick. If you're a bricklayer, you're fucking... That's a lot of bricks. It's a shitload of bricks. It's a lot of bricks. It's brick heaven. A hundred brick factories. Also, it was an exciting time to be in St. Louis with the World's Fair going on. Bill's youthful love of athletics was sparked again while attending the 1904 Olympic Games, which took place in the middle of the fair. Bill was really taken with the marathon race, which was still a new sport. Although... As long as it wasn't for fun. Right. No, it's not for fun. All right. Uh, the 1904, uh, 1904 marathon was marred by cheating, doping, and other scandals. <laughs> We've come a long way. <laughs> but it still went on to inspire a local version the following year, the Missouri Athletic Club All-Western Marathon. Catchy. Catchy mm-hmm. title. Bill joined other enthusiasts of the new niche sport and started going for training runs on the outside roads of St. Louis. Some farmers were livid with the new sport. Of course. They were outraged that their daughters would see men dashing by in what they took as undergarments. Yep. Very, (laughs) very fair way of looking at everything. Perfect. He's running around in his underwear in front of my girls. Uh, My girls won't be able to focus because there's a naked man running. Look at him in his shorts. He's just showing it off. By 1907, Bill entered the Missouri AC Marathon for the first time. He finished in the back of the pack but was not deterred, and he kept at it. Running was now his passion. Okay. In 1908, while in Arkansas working, he beat a horse in a 10-mile race. Okay, so... <laughs> All righty. Um, so a couple of things. Yeah. You want to... That's a terrible horse. <laughs> okay, yeah. That's one. Look, I think I could find an earlier step. Two. Uh, who set that up? Yeah. Who was like, I can beat a horse. <laughs> Who was like, oh, you're a runner? You're one of the runner guys? Well, how would you take out my horse? Yeah. Bert! I mean, all the horse is not like, I need to beat this guy. No, the horse is like, I'm going to walk. I'll run whatever way. whatever I want to do. Oh, I actually don't have a horse in this race. Yeah, no, I don't uh, actually know what competition is. I'm a horse, but I don't have a horse in this race. Yep, so. Uh, I'm just going to watch. All righty. I can't imagine that it was a full sprint race. No. Uh, yeah, I, what kind of that's like Fox had that fucking show like probably fucking eight years ago where it was like man versus beast and it would be like who can do more chin ups a Navy SEAL or an orangutan an orangutan yeah because he was just like what the fuck and the Navy SEAL was like 41 the orangutan was like my uh, life is this the orangutan is like also bananas yeah, he's I don't like, give a shit 401 with my toe uh, though Bill continued to follow the bricklayer work wherever it was in demand, St. Louis remained his base. In 1909, he did something crazy and actually found a place to live. He put down roots and moved into the boarding house of Lizzie Herbert, a mother with three daughters. The eldest of these was a pretty 18-year-old redhead named Nellie. Oh, boy. Bill was super into Nellie, and she returned the feelings. Ooh. Even though he was just five and a half feet tall, well, he was described as picturesque. Ooh, all right. A courtship blossomed, and the couple was soon engaged. All right, time to crank out nine and die. Yep. In May, Bill signed on with the St. Louis-based CL Gray Construction Company, who paid union wages to build a convention hall in a neighboring state. Bill then traveled to Iowa that spring to help build the Des Moines Coliseum. She was going to be a beaut. Sure. The Plank Coliseum would take up an entire city block. Can you imagine? No. Wow. 
the size. Think about it. Do I? I can't even. I can't even picture it. I don't have any idea. It would rise four stories high and hold up to ten thousand people. Whoa! Hello. Well, it's like ancient Rome. Overlooking the Des Moines River, the venue would, in ensuing decades, would host tractor shows, corn growers' conventions, and speeches by four U.S. presidents. So there you go. A lot of great stuff in there. Oh, yep. Corn. Come watch corn grow. It corn grower convention where you all coming together and you go. So what's going on with your corn? Good growing. How about yours? It's growing up. Yep. See you next year. Okay, catch you around. Hey. Bill was one of 20 bricklayers to work on the building, along with 30 carpenters and other tradesmen and laborers. On Thursday, October 21st, 1909, the Coliseum was nearing completion. Under a clear blue sky, the bricklayers were standing on a narrow platform on the lower level oh of boy. what was becoming a two-tiered roof. Oh, dear. Bill was scraping excess mortar from the part of the wall that rose above him and jutted farther south than the part of the roof holding his platform. Oh, boy. This meant Bill had to grasp the wall with his left hand, lean over, and stretch himself a bit out over the street. See, okay, wow. now, like, even, like, I have a fear of heights, and yeah. I can hear what, like, just hearing that gives yeah. me a uh, a weird... Uh, a weird feeling? Uh, yeah, I feel like vertigo just from He'll hearing that. He'll be fine. No, I don't like this. <laughs> so he would reach up with to scrape the mortar with the trowel with his right hand. Ugh. This was why bricklaying was dangerous work and why they were one of the first unions. Just a couple of days before, a fellow brickie had fallen to his death from a building just two miles away. Around noon, the breeze turned blustery. Oh, as Bill per- pulled... <laughs> oh, have fun up there. Use your one hand. It's going to be a little breezy today. As Bill pulled himself back into a standing position, a 30-mile-an-hour gust caught him and threw him off balance. Bill lost his footing and fell from the platform. The fall was 65 feet to the sidewalk. Well, I'm assuming that there's some sort of canopy he falls through to survive. Well, a month earlier, a city official had asked the site's foreman to remove some sidewalk barriers. He figured the work was almost done and a state fair was about to increase foot traffic. That's what allowed a tailor named John Holmquist to find himself walking down the sidewalk past the Coliseum uh, when a 130-pound bricklayer landed on his head and shoulders. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. They totem pulled? Bill drove Holmquist into the ground, snapping his neck instantly. Uh, what? It, let's get all the good news out right now. <laughs> Jesus. Kennedy rebounded from Holcomb's body and landed with considerable force upon the sidewalk, reported the Des Moines News. Holmquist's body lay prostrate on the walk, eyes staring into the sun. He was dead, leaving behind a wife and five children. Bill was seriously injured. Wait, Bill was seriously injured? Yeah, he fell, he fell on a nice... He's not dead? No, he fell on a nice soft guy. <laughs> Got a nice tailor. Tailors aren't, like, hardened. They just, they're like a pillow. <laughs> Thank God for that human cushion. <laughs> Holy shit. There's got to be a lot of guilt that goes along with that. Oh, it's got to be weird to fall on another guy. And break Although in, in this half. day and age, I'm sure you're just like, well, lucky me. Sucks to be him. Oh, thanks for being there. Thank you. For, thank you, my gushy friend. <laughs> hey, squishy squish. Bye, squishers. Bill was seriously injured, reported some papers, but apparently only stayed in Mercy Hospital for one week. 
Quote, I was just slightly hurt internally with no broken bills, Bone wrote later. Bill wrote later. Doesn't he sound like a drunk? Uh, it's crazy. The, the, the yeah, he was, in the, he was in the hospital. He was like, I got to get some whiskey. Uh. <laughs> his bone's intact. Bill returned to the Herbert's boarding house in St. Louis, only to have his heart broken. Nellie had moved out and married another man. Oh. It could have been the realization that he had a very dangerous job or the fact that a bricklayer had to spend so much time away. But either way, she decided to break it off. Yeah. Bricklayer is like a comedian. Yeah, but also this comedian uh, just nailed another man into earth. Look, that guy was at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was there to save Bricklayer Bill. (laughs) Naturally, this created an opening for Nellie's younger sister, Jessica. Your dad's dead because a man fell on him, kids. (laughs) Your dad's dead and he's not coming back because a man fell on him. Oh, no, you can't see him. He's in half. He's, <laughs> no, he's honestly, he, he looks like he's just a, basically a statue. He's all concrete. We buried him in a hole. We put yeah. him in a bucket. Well, we really didn't have to do much burying. We actually brought him up a couple feet because yeah. he was really we down into the crust. scooped him out. Naturally, this created an opening for Nellie's younger sister, Jessie. Why, why, <laughs> why go to a different house? <laughs> You know, it's all right there. That is there. true. The girl got married, and he was like, yeah, I'll still stay here. Well, there's another door. I still got that room with the bed. So. Living in closed quarters again, their relationship suddenly became more intimate. In October 1910, Jesse realized... Sexually intimate? She was pregnant. Well, right. That's how intimate it was. Yeah. That's super intimate. That He finished. The couple were married on Halloween. He was 26 <laughs> years old, and she... Was what is now known as sixteen. Mmm, fine <laughs> stuff. They continued to live in her mother's house. The engagement didn't start well because Jesse complained that the engagement ring Bill bought her wasn't as big or fancy as the one he'd given her sister. Oh boy, that's this is of, why you got to leave the gene pool. Well, that's also the kind of thing that a sixteen-year-old does. Yeah. <laughs> So that's why you don't marry him. Oh, man, can you imagine his face when he heard that? He's like, oh, shit, she noticed. Oh, God, here we go. Uh, Jesse did not soften with age. The couple remained together for the rest of his life and raised two daughters, but all indications are that it was a rocky marriage. Relatives and in-laws would remember Jesse as, quote, emotional, an odd duck, and a tartar. So she's an emotionally tartar duck. <laughs> Fair. Fair. You've heard it a million times. Fair description. You've heard it a million times. Yeah, she's classic emotional tartar. She's an ETD. Bill then stayed on the road as much as possible. Cool. That's what you do when you marry a tartar. Yeah. Or emotional tartar duck. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Now, Bill wasn't just on the road for the sweet love of bricklaying. He also went out for what is known as competitive running. He often took a bricklaying job where there was going to be a race. He returned to New York to run the Yonkers Marathon in 1911. The next year, he came in fifth in the St. Louis Marathon, his first time among the prize winners and close enough to have almost qualified for the 1912 Olympics. Wow. 1913 was a career year. In the space of 10 weeks, he won the St. Louis Marathon, the Chicago Marathon, and three road races of 9, 11 and a half, and 15 miles Finishing second, another 50-miler. His Chicago win came during a deadly summer heat wave. The thermometer hit 98 that day, and Kennedy lost 12 pounds during the race. What? Yeah. He could not hang here in this day and age. No. 
He'd melt. Yeah, he, that's He lost 12 pounds during a race. race. And he weighed five, he was five feet five tall on me. So he wasn't, he didn't have 12 pounds to lose. He's did a he start with guy. a bunch of change in his pockets? He did. He had, he had change in a it. couple of melons. I knew it. Cheech running with two melons. <laughs> well, a sports writer cracked, not all the nuts are in the strong wards. So he said not all the crazy people. Right. Are in now, most Americans of the era still thought marathon running was a daredevil stunt rather than a sport. What is wrong with the species? <laughs> How? Witchcraft. <laughs> Look at that. Look, he's running a long way like some kind of miracle worker. You quit walking so fast, buddy. What's wrong with this one? <laughs> Why don't you just jump nine horses? <laughs> The races drew only a few dozen competitors. Cities wouldn't close off roads for the races, so the runners had to deal with horses, bicycles, and automobiles. <laughs> Jesus Christ. They're just running. Yeah, just yeah. running through traffic. Yeah, they look like Rocky. Every <laughs> their, The whole life is just the Rocky run. <laughs> Sometimes they had to stop the race for a train or a funeral procession. Jesus. During you want, his, you got to beat that train. Gotta like, beat I beat that, that train. train. I got a hell of a shot. Get in front of that train. During his running career, Bill was hit twice by cars. Okay. <laughs> Not most runners say that. Uh, the conditions were a bit better in Boston, home to the nation's oldest marathon, first run in 1897. Okay. There, sports fans and the press respected marathon runners, treating them as athletes, not lunatics. Bricklayer Bill <laughs> now set his sights on the marathon's holy grail of victory at Boston. All right. Unfortunately, in December... 2013, Bill was working in Chicago, Illinois, when a typhoid fever epidemic broke out. Mm. It killed 276 people that year. Jesus Christ. Bill caught it. Oh, Jesus. In 13 weeks, he lay in Chicago's postgraduate hospital suffering from fever, delirium, headaches, and diarrhea. Then did he just give it to some poor bastard who was walking by and get better? <laughs> I need a tailor. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I'm dying. I feel quite good. Uh, quote, most people survived the bout with typhoid, but only by the skin of their teeth, according to one study of mortality in Chicago. This is a time when people had skin on their teeth. Yes. Yeah. They did. Basically. Yeah. The typical typhoid survivor was so weakened and compromised by the disease that he or she later would succumb to other infectious diseases like tuberculosis or <laughs> die of kidney or heart failure. So you would survive it just to die of something else, it's generally. It's the dream. It's great. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Typhoid's not going to get me. My organs are going to shut down. I can't wait till this shit starts shutting off. <laughs> yeah. Bill was one who recovered, but he was also compromised and weakened. By the time he left the ho hospital, he was prematurely gray. Okay. So he got gray hair when he got typhoid. Yeah, but, he, well, I mean, he's 30, so he's basically 70. <laughs> Competitive running was out of the question. The Chicago Tribune wrote, quote, his battle for life has reduced Bill Kennedy to a shell. It is doubtful if the marathon star will ever be able to condition himself for another grind. As an added bonus, Bill now owed the hospital $500. He was flat broke. He had no health insurance, and he was in no condition for construction work. But Bill was well-liked, and the bricklayers and amateur athletes of Chicago organized a fundraiser for bricklayer Bill. Wow. When the proceeds were tallied, he had enough to pay his medical bills. Lovely. All right? Yeah, That's life is story. sweet. Yeah. What's, what's, this is great. Oh, everything's great for him. 
What a then, great life. One of the locals gave him a job selling sporting goods in a department store so that he could earn a living while taking it relatively easy for the time being. The name of the store was the Boston Store. Catchy. Mm. By 1915, Bill was back in bricklaying shape. Ah, great. Finally. Back to the dream of putting bricks in one spot. <laughs> Forever. And occasionally falling and killing yeah, and, a man. Yeah, and if you're lucky, killing a man. Despite warning, warnings from most of the doctors at the hospital, Bill then resumed running. He started slowly but eventually worked his way up to 20 miles. In April, he applied to the Illinois Athletic Club, which he had joined before contracting typhoid for expenses to travel to Boston for the marathon on St. Patrick's Day. Okay. But club officials wouldn't pay expenses for runners whose days of glory were behind him. They knew the toll typhoid took on a body, saw Bill's gray hair and aged face, and dismissed him as over the hill. You're done! <laughs> you're, no, I just ran 20. You're 24. You're fucking done. <laughs> you're 24, you old piece of shit. <laughs> you look like you're 90. Come on. You're 24, you look like you're 40. Jesus Christ. Which is 90. You make me sick. But Bill was like, fuck that. About a week before the race, he wrapped his tracksuit and running shoes in a newspaper and with 30 cents in his pocket, climbed into a cattle car on the south side. I don't need no money. I was a fucking hobo. <laughs> <laughs> he traveled for five days. I want to say that someday. Mostly hoboing, but occasionally paying a fare. He described a pit stop. It's so Albany. funny to be like, I'm going to actually pay for this one. <laughs> I'm going to be a citizen and not a hobo for a ride. Oh yeah, I don't want to ride. I don't want to ride with the cows. Yeah, <laughs> going to ride with the people. Yeah, it was the custom with most breweries that an out-of-town visitor could sample their product. So, paying my respects, I was the recipient of four schooners of brew, my vitamins for the day. Yep, every doctor or nutritionist would agree. <laughs> four beers a day and a handful of pretzels. I was just having my vitamins. Yes, you mean alcohol. Yes. I'm a bit of a health nut. I like I like that like twenty vitamins. I'm on this new health kick. I'm throwing up vitamins. You got to cure yourself. So he doesn't really know what a vitamin is. No. Bill arrived in Boston riding on the roof of a baggage car three days before the marathon and secured a bricklaying job to pay his way back. He's there for three fucking days and he's like, I'll be a bricklayer and then run a marathon. It's insane. The next morning, the Boston Globe ran a big feature with cartoon illustrations relating how Bill had thumbed his nose at his skeptical, skeptical athletic club and made his own way back east. The Globe noted, incidentally, he abhors the idea of enriching the coffers of the railway magnets. <laughs> He's a fucking hobo. <laughs> the hobo runner. <laughs> right? That's, yeah. They called him Bricklayer Bill, but he should have been called the, the hobo, hobo runner. runner. Yeah. Bricklayer Bill instantly became a local celebrity. He only finished 15th in the marathon that year, but in 1916, he came in 6th. Okay. Cheered on by the Boston fans. So he's a fan favorite. April 6th, 1917, the oh U.S. Boy. officially entered the war in Europe, and the Boston Marathon, held two weeks later, turned into an especially patriotic day celebration. With up to half a million spectators waving American flags all along the 25-mile route, the runners favored to win were two Finns. One of them a 1912 Olympian gold medalist. The home crowd didn't want to see any kind of foreigner win at this of all times. Right? Yeah. Well, that's a good thing. Not to now. Not, not that we're, we're at war. Yeah. No goddamn foreigners. No foreigners can win. The Finns are on our side. No. No. <laughs> we're crazy. We must repel the Finns, 
Bill told the Globe before the race, we must repel the Finns. Go get them. One of the Finns, Cryononen, Cryononen, dropped out in Newton, where the runners dealt with a stiff east wind, along with a cloud of auto exhaust and macadam dust. Well, first of all, okay. (laughs) All right, let's just jump to it. What the fuck is the last one? What is that? A wizard sneeze? It says macadam, but I hope it was macadamia and my uh, auto correct just but, changed it but okay either way it's just crazy dust so so macadamia dust is a thing in boston yeah, yeah look out macadamia dust this is where the nuts explode <laughs> oh look out walnut snow <laughs> macadamia dust here comes the almond mist <laughs> you're in boston uh, man this weather's nuts <laughs> uh so uh, Bill passed the last Finn to take the lead just before Wesley College. There, a young woman dashed out to hand him a full-sized Old Glory banner, which he waved while running the next quarter mile. And then I what? guess he just threw on the ground? Yeah, he shouldn't have even... He should have been like, get the sign, I'm trying to win. You, it's the fucking Old Glory. You can't... What's he going to do with it? He must have given it to someone. I, look, I'd be like, I'm trying to win a fucking race. I don't want to wave hold. this shit around. Yeah. Oh, okay, I'll be a patriot and win this fucking race that I'm too old to win. Uh, while Bill was still in the lead, he passed a construction site in Brookline, and his brother Brickies clapped bricks together in support. Anyway, you can say brick a little more in that sentence. <laughs> All right, Brickies, get your bricks and get ready to get bricking, because old bricks is coming. Here it comes clap your bricks together. <laughs> it's brick time. By the way, we have so many fucking bricks. Hey, bricklayer Tom. <laughs> Yeah? You see Bricklayer Bill coming this way? Yeah. Hey, Bricklayer Cliff? Yeah? You see Bricklayer Bill's coming? Yeah. Hey, Bricklayer Bob? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then Bricklayer Bill, wearing a homemade Stars and Stripes bandana, beat the odds and finished first in two hours, 28 minutes, and 37 and one-fifth seconds. And that was, he did that in 25 miles? Yeah, after he fell on a guy... And then after he got typhoid, he then, he then won the Boston Marathon. He then marathon. made his own bandana and went and won the Boston Marathon. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a man. Crazy. Yeah. That's a man. Bill then volunteered with the Army's 23rd Engineers, a road building regiment. Quote, Bill is over the draft age and has a wife and two children, but he wanted to serve his country, read the Globe. Jesus. And his wife backed him up in his resolved end of the race. Oh, sure. Yeah. She yeah. hated him. She was service. like, go. Yeah. He, well, he was like, can I please get the fuck away from you? You yeah. tartar. Yeah. <laughs> you fucking you you duck tartar. Fucking duck tartar. You emotionally duck tartar. <laughs> Brick there, Bill reported for training at Camp Mead in Maryland in December 1917. Five months later, Bill's company landed in France. He remained in France throughout the war. And a year after it ended, finally returning home in December 1919. He became a bricklayer's union president in Mississippi County, Arkansas. Okay. But it was not a good place to be a union man. And after a few lynchings and watching the KKK gain power, stoking fears against labor unions and alcohol, he got the fuck out of there. Yeah, roll. He moved back to Port Chester and worked with his father and brothers again. Jesus. He co-founded the Port Chester Marathon. In 1927, he finished third in the Boston Marathon. And he continued to run in the Boston Marathon every year. Quote, sometimes they ask me why I don't give up marathoning, he said in 1941 when he was 57. 
I always tell them I'd rather give up brick laying. Honest. I get more tired laying bricks than I do running these things. I love that this was a time when that would be like a shocking comparison. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Yeah, no shit. Uh, believe it, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I'd rather run than just constantly put bricks on top of each other. No, really? Yeah, I know. I sound nuts. I'm old-fashioned. I would rather be able to run and just soak in nature than just stand and pick up bricks forever. So you don't enjoy the joy of Brickland. You don't... I Look, I love the monotony <laughs> of picking up the exact same shape over and over again and just placing it on top of another shape. So... So you're going to run tomorrow? I like to run. <laughs> Uh, he ran a total of 29 Boston marathons wow. in his life, 107 marathons in total. Jesus. On May 10th, 1959, it was reported Bill had died. But that was not true. A reporter found him alive and well in St. Louis, where he was taking five to ten mile walks a day at the age of 75. Who's the first reporter? I don't know. They just. I'm just going to assume that he's dead because I haven't seen him in a while. Out. Yeah, it's a bricklayer Bill is dead. <laughs> oh, here That's how you fucking... found out. Hey, son of a bitch. But there is no record of his death that I actually could find, so he may still be out there. How old would he be? Well, he'd be pretty... He'd be 100. 100 and some odd years yeah, old. Okay. He'd probably oldest man alive. 200, yeah. he'd probably be. But we can't, we can't say that he's definitely not alive. God, I hope that guy's still... That 200-year-old man is still out there running. <clears throat> so that's a man. That is a man. That's a real man. Uh, a guy who falls on another guy and then gets typhoid and then wins a marathon <laughs> is pretty falls, important. Falls on a guy. He fell on a guy. God was like, no, you're going to win the marathon. Yeah, this guy's a loser. I don't want a guy to fall on me. <laughs> you fl- oh, God. Because there's mean, I- no, you at least, you at least want, like, I would rather have a second to process that I'm right. going to die. You don't just, even have a second if a guy yeah, falls no, on you. Yeah, if a you. dude falls on you, you're not. You could not be more comfortable. How often are you looking up to see if dudes are falling on you? I do that a lot now after reading the story. Yeah, well, since, yeah. Uh, since yesterday, I've been doing it quite. Although a bit. we're going to be doing that about drones, I guess. So that's yeah, the drones new. Are, that's, yeah, the that's, that's the new, new bricklayer. <laughs> <laughs> that's the new bricklayer drop. <laughs> new bri- oh God, another guy killed. You know the guy got killed. That's what they're layer. doing. Is the drones are just dropping bricklayers? <laughs> oh shit! Take cover. <laughs> just landing into bricks. Well, it's Bricklayer Bill. Well, it's a pleasure to meet him. Not a sad story. No. I think he... No, this is actually... I think we can say that this is a feel-good dollop. This is a feel-good dollop. Yeah, yeah. I did a feel-good one. They're so infrequent. Yeah. I might. The next one might be a feel-good one, too. So the next one will be... Uh, we're going to put up the Will Anderson Live at LA Podfest one uh, on Saturday. So that'll be the next one. That'll be good. Um, do we have any anything to announce or anything else? I think we're all good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nothing. I got nothing. Okay. Um. Oh, you know what? Uh, please. A guy from iTunes sent me a thing and said, "Hey, you actually should leave reviews. It does help your help you out. So go leave an iTunes review if you like the show. Yeah. Apparently, it's a, a good thing. Yeah. Subscribe and, on your phone. And we're on. Uh, yeah, and subscribe on your phone. And we're on um, Facebook, The Dollop, and we're on yeah. uh, Twitter, The Dollop. Active communities on both. Yep, active communities. 
People are really talking to each other. It's a great, 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 great album cover that I put up on the Facebook page. Oh, and, God, and then yeah. the And then the Photoshop. Well, that's, um, yeah, the Reed Parker Photoshop. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> I mean, so Gary, funny. the guy who called himself Gary. Yeah, no, I know. I, and you know what's funny is that that was not the first time I've seen that. Really? Yeah, someone else had sent me that before. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, this... This turned out to be a full dollop as opposed to a, a small. Small up. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you get into bricklaying and hoboing. Yeah, that's what happens when hobos fall from the sky. God damn it. <laughs> it's raining hobos. Um, how about a new sign off? How about we say. Uh, nope. Just go. We love you. Nope. Love and kisses. Let's just leave. Love and hugs and kisses from oh, Gary and Dave. Jesus Christ. Oh, hey there, everybody. It's Gareth, you know, from this. Uh, this podcast. Uh, listen, I've got some stand-up shows. I'm inviting the Garmy, the Gareth Army, to join me for. I will be in Fort Collins, Colorado, August 18th and August 19th. I will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, August 24th through August 26th at Acme. I will be going to the UK in September. Please join me. I will be in Glasgow, September 13th, London, September 15th, Dublin, September 17th, and September 19th, Manchester, Birmingham, September 20th, Bristol, September 22nd, and Cardiff, September 24th. And then in November, I'll be in Australia. November 10th, almost sold out, I think. I'll be in Melbourne, Australia. Then I will be in Northbridge, Australia on November 15th. Adelaide, November 16th. Canberra, November 17th. Brisbane, November 18th. And then I will be in uh, Sydney on November 24th. Go to GarethReynolds.com for tickets. Garmy, let's get at it. After it. Let's see you there. Hey there, people listening to The Dollop. Uh, this is Gareth. Yes, the same guy. I Listen, I have a new podcast called We're Here to Help that I'm doing with my friend Jake Johnson. It's basically a call and advice show where we don't say that we're professionals because we aren't, but we try to help people with problems that are important to them. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts, and it is out right now. So go listen to We're Here to Help with Jake and Gareth. We're here to help with Gareth and Jake. I don't remember how we did it, but either way, fun half hour comes out Tuesday, August 22nd, and the episodes will be out every Tuesday and Friday. We're here to help. 